Vlad Sohin is a Russia-born documentary photographer, videographer, and multimedia producer covering socio-cultural, environmental, and human rights issues worldwide. His projects are supported by various UN agencies and international NGOs. Vlad's work has been featured in over 40 publications, including National Geographic, NPR, Newsweek Japan, BBC, and The Guardian. In 2014, he was named Best Photographer in Russia, and in 2017, he was awarded Davisa d'Or France Info, award for the best digital news story for his Warm Waters Kamchatka series. Vlad is a citizen of the world. He is currently based in the Asia-Pacific region and continues to work on photography and video projects there, in addition to Africa, Europe, Russia, and the Middle East. Vlad Sokin, welcome to The Creative Process. Hello. Uh, so you are a documentary photographer. Your work has really focused on the important issues of the day. Um, I, I want to speak about your Warm Waters project, but there's so many issues in the world. And, and I want to ask you, why did you decide to focus on being a documentary photographer uh, as opposed to you know other kind of aesthetically aimed you know photography um and how, how do you how do you decide on your subjects bearing in mind all the issues and all the problems in the world mm. i guess the decision to be a documentary photographer um, came quite naturally because i you know i studied photography in lisbon and uh, we had many different subjects there when i was back in the university and other things never clicked to me. Like I didn't want to be, I, I worked as an assistant for like a fashion photography shoots. I did some advertisement, a couple of weddings. It was not my thing, uh, but uh, telling the stories, that's where my, my heart was. And so mm -hmm. I started, uh, basically started first as a photojournalist covering uh, small stories for local media and like newspapers and magazines and then I switched to uh, be working more on personal and long-term projects, having like you know some impact, uh, choosing impactful topics, and spending years on uh, working with these uh, topics. And uh, like, yeah, that's that's it. It's it's, it's it's what I want to do, right? And uh, it's not about money, as my teacher said. If you want to be rich, go to advertisement, and it's mm -hmm. about lifestyle. What you want to achieve, what you want to share with people, and uh, in terms of um, topics I choose, uh, somehow the, these topics choose me. I just happen to be there. I like, for example, I I moved to Australia and then uh, was exploring the neighboring countries, and that's when it was back in 2011. That's where I found uh, my first big projects that I started working on and one of them was, was um, uh, gender-based violence in Papua New Guinea, right? So there was, uh, of course I travel far away, but mostly it's like something that is in my neighborhood around me. And that's where I also encountered later on uh, stories uh, that related to climate change. Uh, I was sent to, uh, in 2013 to um, cover uh, deforestation and illegal logging in Papua New Guinea 
was an Australian uh, online media sent me there, the Global Mail. And um, uh, I did one story, I did another for them, and then I thought, oh, it would be interesting to keep telling the stories and connect the whole region together. And that's how the World War Motors was, was born, right? Yeah. Uh, and that project's been going, it's like over eight years now, or that you've, it's covering Oceania. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's been, uh, it started in 2013. We, we're already in 2020. Yes, I'm still, uh, I always, every year I say, okay, this is my first year, uh, last year. I'm, I'm stopping. I'm not doing this. And then something else comes, comes up. You know, someone calls me, go to this country. Yes, this project includes Oceania, uh, most of the Pacific Islands. It's about like 18 countries and territories, but it also includes Russia, uh, Russian uh, peninsula, uh, peninsula of Kamchatka in the north, far east of Russia, and also includes Alaska all the way up to the Arctic uh, Circle, the Barrow, the city of Barrow, which is uh, the northernmost part of the U.S. So it's the whole big region from up to down to north to New Zealand, Pacific Islands, like Tokelau, for example. Yeah. Uh -huh. And um, and it just shows you uh, when you would say you it's the last year you're not going to do it anymore. It's just how um, pervasive how our climate is changing. The rising it's not just rising sea levels. It's um, you know uninhabitable areas and the economy is based on that. And as you say, we have um, in in your you have documentary videos of this as well. Um, you have the climate refugees as well and all those repercussions yeah uh i mean maybe climate refugees is not the correct term to say even media loves it uh, mm -hmm. you know there's, there's only like single couple of cases where like actually people i mean i guess it was now and now is more but um communities i visited i would call them internally displaced people because of climate change mm -hmm. uh, so they move in for example in alaska they move in uh, villages Mm -hmm. There's a village of New Talk. They relocated the entire village to a new location where they hope that they won't be affected by uh, permafrost towing and coastal erosion. But those new houses they built, they already built them the way that can be slided somewhere else. So that's like they have this in mind that, you know, they could put them on the slides and then move them somewhere else easily. The village of Shishmarev in Alaska as well, they just few years ago they voted for the entire relocation of the village and before they spent like millions of dollars of you know uh, building like big sea walls hoping that this would protect them you know like it doesn't work it doesn't work in 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 places like like Tuvalu for example um, uh, people also try to immigrate try to move it's not only because of climate change, it's also because of overpopulation, it's because of lack of jobs, many things, but climate change also becoming one of those, uh, yes, important factors. And uh, yeah, they, they moved to New Zealand, to Wallons try to move to Niue, another Pacific island that is more protected, it's like big volcanic elevated rock in the middle of the ocean, and they face the other problem of depopulation. There is, they, they people have New Zealand citizenship, so they move to New Zealand and nobody wants to stay there. So it's, a, it's an interesting shifts and migrations we could see in the Pacific. And yes, but many of them now are 
associated with climate change because especially tiny atolls, those, those people are most affected. Would you say that climate change um, denialism is very prevalent in the Pacific? Well, I mean, I don't think there's, I'm sure there are some people who deny climate change, they have different reasons. And, you know, now I think, uh, of course, every Pacific Islander who lives on this front line of climate change, they wouldn't say it doesn't exist. They see it every day. But also they have the understanding that some of the processes are also natural, for example, or man-made, which is may kind of, uh, make effects of climate change more kind of like visible, you know, they could feel more, but it's like in, it started, it started by men, for example, in, uh, there's some places, for example, in, in Kiribati where are, um, they had an island in the middle of the lagoon and then they start, cre start creating uh, causeways, you know, building a road between little islets. And then the water flow changes and that island disappeared. And then people will start saying climate change, climate change, like sea level rise, which is not. So it's good to, uh, you know, to, okay, understand this is what we do. This is what climate change does, right? And, right. and how humans involved in that. But generally, like, if you ask me if there's like, there's a big denial movement, no, nobody, people, every day it affects like every day on many aspects of their daily right. life so particularly relevant to your warm waters project i was really struck by the images of um, children like happily and freely wading through thick coastal trash and um, would you say that people there like find value in the things that swim up like the bottles the garbage the expressions in the children's faces were just like you know carelessness and happiness almost yeah children always playful it's like for them is not a problem for them is oh look how many things like let's play with it they don't understand the the adults though their parents they have to clean up every time because it affects their you know they can't fish there anymore because this trash comes to the or to the oceans or to their rivers you know they can't swim anymore you know children swim in this trash so they have to come up with the solution, the children are children. You know, you give them toys, they play with toys. And no toys, they find something else. And so as a documentary photographer, um, when you, what you're looking for in the, I don't know if you see it as the purpose of your photography, but is it to document, you know, what you're seeing? Or is there that you feel that that's one step towards inspiring action? Or, you know, the formal beauty of your photography, is it always really in service of something? How would you describe your mission through your photography? Well, these things go hand by hand all the time. Uh, of course, the primary theme is to, to be there and to document. But again, I can't say that uh, I'm just like a, a person who documents the, the reality as in a neutral way it's not in a neutral way we're all involved you know i choose to show this not some not the beautiful flowers right and like i choose in, i choose in this topic so of course i'm involved and i'm passionate about what is going to our what's going on with our planet where we're all going what's going to happen in the future if if we don't change um if we don't change uh the way we treat our planet um, and then, it, then, it, then the second question goes like, okay, what we can do about this and how photography can help. 
And uh, in a project that I, I worked uh, back in time in Papua New Guinea about gender-based violence called Crying Mary, this was straightforward. Women were abused, uh, children were abused. I partnered with many organizations like some United Nations agencies, uh, some big NGOs. And we made things happen, you know, made things change. And they used my photographs to, to even change some laws in the country. There were big protests and, and some of my photography was, were involved. And uh, my book that I published later was launched in the Parliament House of Papua New Guinea, right? With like ministers attended and, and also in the Parliament of Australia. Uh, but um, with climate change, it's, it's a bit, it's, this is a global issue, right? It's not a country issue. And there's many different institutions and organizations that work, that work around it. And people still figuring out what to do, to be honest, right? So in this, my, uh, I think my role as a photographer is uh, to open a window to the place, uh, places that nobody really goes, nobody really sees them, right? It's the most remote, you know, maybe Antarctica is more remote than the Pacific, right? It's really hard to get there. It's really hard to, you know, travel between those islands. It, it, it costs a lot. It's like, it, it's time consuming, you know, it's like logistically a bit, you know, way more difficult than if you work in Europe or in Africa even. And, um, yeah, so this is the window to people and also like a possibility, okay, you, you maybe never leave, you never heard of these countries, right? But that go to, to the website or go to the exhibition and see for yourself and, uh, you know, and see what is really, really happening there every day. And then maybe, maybe you will make a decision. And I'm not talking about those big uh, organizations like Greenpeace or the UN, for example, they all know what is happening, right? It's about for people. I believe that the change starts within, from, 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 uh, from me. If I don't put trash anywhere, if I save the water, if I save electricity, if I use renewable energy, if I cut on this and this on my international travels or maybe meat consuming or something like that, then I contribute then the other person can contribute. Like changing the mentality of people, that's, that's for me is more important. And I hope that my project could contribute to that. I think that's so important. And that's something that, you know, we're discussing a lot with students, you know, we know how can they take their own, their individual responsibility, add it up, you know, person on person as a total. If it's, you know, if we're having, uh, temperatures rise by you know just one degree that creates a lot but if we're all making those conscious decisions and so I think that it must be interesting for you when you're going into these societies where people can see you know they they're watching the rising tide level they're really seeing it they're more in touch with their decisions and more in touch with the environment you know that they can how, how it affects their their livelihood their way of life um, but us in the West, we are kind of sheltered from the consequences. Well, for the time being, we're often removed from the consequences of our individual responsibility. Um, and so I'm just going off topic, but I, I felt that if we each, uh, because that's how we can inspire governments and, and corporations to make changes, that if we had a kind of estimate of they always say for companies, what's your carbon footprint or whatever, but individually, if we had an estimate of what is our carbon footprint, if we had an idea, then we could have an idea, we could, we could go down a little. We might, you know, even get a 
a tax break for making that taking that responsibility ourselves in order for us to do positive and anyway I, I always try to think about how um we just don't change awareness but we change our um action yes 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 i agree with you this is like the, the every you know we, we're talking about this now but like every ancient uh system says like the change comes from within everybody says you know and this is like we need to understand that the people that lived before us right we're talking about survival of humanity right now the mm -hmm. people that lived before us they were facing different problems but they would connect how do we change if i change myself then the other see me changed the other changed as well and then maybe we as a as a society maybe we want as as we changed already maybe we want elect a person who would rule us who would become a president of a big country and then he would be do some stupid things we probably won't will not let it happen anymore because we changed we want to elect someone who would deny climate change we want to elect someone who won't do action to to protect us because in the end we all you know if you think about like your personal gain or your country gain but you don't think more on a global level what is going to happen with the humanity if you keep cut the forest if you you know stop stop agreeing with other people like uh, with other leaders how to save our planet if you like sign out from from international agreements don't support them anymore then you know what do you do and I'm curious also about your your childhood, your upbringing. What drew you to your your journey towards photography, and why you decided that that would be your lens to tell these stories, as opposed to some other way of telling stories or engaging politically. Uh, well, first of all, uh, I'm trying to stay from the politics. Like yes. my previous statement, right? But it, it, I'm speaking generally without like saying names or something. Yeah. I'm yeah. trying. I'm. I'm trying to stay as as far from the politics as possible. This mm -hmm. is not not my thing. Photography is a natural thing. I'm more a visually, you know, like I'm a visual person. I like to to see. I I, I connect through it. You know. I I'm. But I'm not those that one of those photographers that always work walk with the camera as well. If I work, I take my camera. If I don't, I like to enjoy life and. Um, take take photos with my eyes they inspire inspire me but i do it every day so for me it was a natural choice i just uh, i just chose this path because i do write as well and for me writing is uh, is also the way especially if i accompany my story but it is not that expressive as uh, as as visual you know as visual uh, storytelling it's how you explain the what your experiences to yourself yes 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 and it's a I, way of life yeah know. well the, yeah it's really hard to find the origins uh, of something that just as you say your the stories come to you it's kind of an instinct christina i see has another question um yeah this one has more to do with place and um the question is how important is it for you to feel connected or establish a connection to the locations where you are shooting? It is very important. I think it's a crucial part of, uh, if you're really serious about the, the topic, if you're serious about the message you want to say, you can't be um, just like a, a tourist, 
with the camera. You can't just come and, you know, come for two or three. Sometimes we do it because the media, like the magazine send me, they don't have a big budget. They give me two, three days and you go. But like, I'm telling the story of those two, three days. I always tell my photography students about that. But if you're really passionate about it, you'll find a way to come back. And then connection is everything, is the key. It's not about anymore if you can uh, take good pictures or not, right? You should, you're supposed to take good pictures. It's about how deep you can go, you know, how much, you, how, how deep you connect with people that allow you. Access is everything. If you, if you can have the best camera, the best skill, the best ability, but you can't connect with people, then you will not get a picture. You take some tourist pictures of the outside, but not of the inside. You not go inside the problem. So for that, of course, one-on-one, -on -one, like a personal connection, connection is crucial. The second thing is always the language. I try to learn the language at least a little bit. The more I learn, the better. So you could speak the same language. You speak, you, you know some cultural background of this place. You know some kind of cultural things that you need to respect as well. It's very important. And so many things, then you be there, you learn as well. Be open, that's, that's other things, like be open. Many things that come to you from different direction every day, not, not come and say, I know, I read an article about it, I did my research. No, be open to receive, that it will work. And so as a, you're, I mean, you, you've been uh, taking photos for a long time, but you're still, you're youngish, I would say. So I'm, just, I'm wondering if you noticed or if you'd been around really where you feel, um, were you able to observe the evolution in journalism? I mean, as we you know, there's been, a, there was a kind of golden era and then everything is kind of, <laughs> is, uh, is changed. I don't know if you remember the way journalism was like before? It is, uh, I remember from, from the stories, yes. I would say, because the golden, golden era, it would be probably 70s or 80s, I guess, yeah, maybe a bit of 90s, but then it started, the dig, everything started to go digital, the budgets were cut and everything. Uh, to be honest, uh, my generation of photographers, those who talk, who work maybe like a decade, a bit more, right? Uh, professionally as established photographers, I mean, um, we all came, I think, uh, to into the place where like you had to start as a freelancer. When if, if before you, you go freelance, if you already have so many clients, you, you don't need the agency anymore. You don't need, uh, you know, the, the, the media anymore. And then, but, we all came when it's like, if you're not freelance, nobody is going to hire you. Not all of them, but majority, I'm saying, mm. you know? And for my, for example, when I, um, for my uh, class, I think two or three people work as a photographers. Uh, everybody quit. They find different jobs. It was not easy. Mm. It was not easy. And yeah, things change. And we also change. Before you had to be, you just, you're a photographer. Great. Now you have to be, can you shoot with iPhone? Can you do panorama? Can you do video? Can you do drone? And now every, if you want a job, you have to be a multi-skilled. Can you, can you shoot underwater? I, so I shoot all these things and you know, like, I, and, but it helps me because when I'm on location and I have time for my personal project, I can make it more diverse. Mm -hmm. So it's not about survival and making money. It's about how do you, how else you can tell the story? Can you tell it through, 
you know, through your camera or you can tell it through, through, through other things and sometimes your camera is not around. So there's many things that you need, like you add in skill. I think my, my, my pass, and, and that's what I teach as well to my students, I always say, guys, being a photographer is not enough anymore. You have to add skills all the time. And that's what is it probably like being a, a, a journalist or photojournalist or documentary, documentary photographer, you know, these days. Yeah, it's a really completely almost a whole person. Yeah, you're the one you, before you could depend on a whole team. <laughs> it's, it's interesting, um, but I guess it's enriching your experience as well. And you spoke about access as well and, and gaining trust. I mean, what are some, I mean, I know, imagine it changes for a lot of societies, but you speak about some like in Papua New Guinea. So societies that are communities are so vastly different from from ours i can't even imagine that i have friends who have projects there so um how do you gain their trust and how do you um or or in other communities as well in the bhutan or any of these places that you have documented well papua new guinea it, it takes you need to be one of them so when i arrived to papua new guinea for the first time First thing I started to do is learning their language, talk to Sini. And a uh, few words, and then until I started talking fluently, speaking fluently, and I could interview people in this language, uh, learning all these language, it's also, it saved me, it saved, it saved life me, I would say. Papua New Guinea is a tough country. A few times I've been attacked, and only my knowledge of talk to slang words especially like some women like words that they would only speak between themselves and they say and suddenly these people who want to rob you or like having swinging machete in front of your face suddenly oh man you're one of them welcome there's a lot of customs that you like in, in vanuatu nothing starts before or you before you drink kava there's like a special traditional drink that you you know in 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 uh, in Papua New Guinea, they chew betel nut, which is a kind of, I don't know, it's a strange thing to do, and I don't do it anymore. But when I was starting and establishing my trust, I had to chew betel nut, sit with them, and do have, it's not nice, I would say. But it's a custom that you need to respect. And, and as well, in, in the other, in the, like in Thailand, you, there are rules here, they live in Thailand, right? You respect certain rules there, the way you greet people, the way you smile, what you touch. It's 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 good. We we don't you know we don't expect we it's 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 a natural way you know like you come to someone's house you respect their rules, and and this is one the first thing that I learned uh, as an experienced travel experienced traveler I I always do that, and also other thing I would say is uh, how can you connect with the person uh, you photograph on the personal level. What can, like, forget that you're a photographer, uh, you know, white male, especially like in my case, from Western country, coming to, uh, to this country, coming to these people and trying to tell your story. Why would they allow? So uh, what is, uh, what connects you personally? For me, when I, when I was like gender, working on gender by, based violence for me it was uh, I experienced something like that you know domestic violence it was part of my family as well so when they share a story with me I understand them I have this empathy and I can share my story with them as well and so there was the connection there was the connection for me I was telling my story as well 
for climate change, it is, uh, it is this that matters to everybody. If we don't, every of us, if we don't do anything, it will shoot back at us in the future. It's already actually, yeah. Yes, and how would you say that being a photographer and um, encountering these cultures has transformed you personally? Mm, a lot a lot it is for me it was a journey an inner journey i would say it's a uh, yeah um, i don't know where to start even but uh, every every time i go and i uh, photograph every time i meet people that experienced so much i can't even imagine what I would do in their situation. And of course, it made me think in the end of the day, I come back, I bring the picture, but like the impact, it, you know, like how do you deal with it, what you do? And of course you change the way you treat people, you know, you not even, you start understanding this like little while, it's like you think, oh, my internet is today so slow, but this person, they don't have food for today at all. This family, I've seen, in Central Africa Republic, I've been working during the Civil War there a few years ago. It was crazy when, you know, you go to school and you see 200 people, 200 students in one class, and they come from the refugee camp because once a day, a school give them a plate of rice. They fight for this rice. They eat only maybe a quarter of it. And then the rest they bring back to their family and it's the only food they have. And when you see this, when you see this, you know, then something changes is in you. And then, and when you see it every day, when you see it for years and years and years, you you understanding about humanity, what we're going through, and many other things also, like, um, and the way you photograph as well. You know, like I always tell, tell the story how I went to Kiribati and tried to photograph. Uh, the big tide of the year i calculated everything it's, uh, last year it was there two years ago it was there to be the big destruction called king tide i booked the tickets i come i check all this like moon and tide cycles everything it didn't happen <laughs> and i was uh, upset you know like <laughs> it's a it's a fortune you invest in this story and then you're there and like what to do and then i learned how to photograph stillness and you know, like how to photograph the beauty, which is also part of the climate change story. Photograph when nothing happens and you still can tell the story through this, like a more meditative, meditative how do you say it correctly, approach to, to the photography when you just, I was sitting and basically like meditating at the beach and looking at the still, still water. And I'm gonna, wow, this is a beautiful picture. <laughs> I definitely can use it in my project. And then do before I was looking for this like gloom and doom and all this like destruction. I want to show this. It's what we used to see because the media always like, oh yeah, this, 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 this. But there's many other ways to say. And then showing people resilience, you know, adaptation of people, like joy and happiness. It's still about climate change. It's still about climate change. It's the as a new generation. Do this thing kids stop playing? their toys because of sea level rise no they still do it yes and it's documenting then what we what we need to preserve you know it's as you say it's not all chaos a lot of nature is is chaos it's going through chaos i like also that 
you frame the story of climate change as one of the, or sorry, yeah, climate change is one of the earth reacting to our actions on it. That's actually its healing process is by changing. And it seems harsh to us, but maybe that's protecting, you know, just like. Yes, this is, this is my understanding. Like, uh, there were dinosaurs before humans. Mm -hmm. They were wiped out. You know, now humans, we think we're in charge. Mm -hmm. In an instant, we can disappear. And then it's Earth as a living organism, which has all these uh, systems to clean, you know, like it's, it's like mechanism how to like clean and like keep being an organism as well. And if like we were given the chance Mm -hmm. to come from the cave people you know into like becoming these people that fly into the space but will we continue with the chance or we will you know destroy all of it and us include you know like i this is like it's not about like uh you know it's it's a humanity humanity destroying itself it's not we we cannot destroy our planet even if we like detonate all the atomic bombs we will kill ourselves and the planet will survive it might take million years recreate the life but it will be there in the cosmos and we would be just right by. so it's all it's all about about us as i see it it's about us we do not cut the branch on which we sit otherwise we will fall so in a way you have like a more optimistic view humans and society is paving perhaps yes. a pathway towards something that might be much more positive, but that's just out of reach for us. It's like a flu, you know, maybe in COVID times is not the best way to say, but like it's, uh, it's something that, okay, we, we get this, we need to heal ourselves. Once Now the planet shows us, okay, guys, like it's not, you can't extract things. You can't cut forests like without being, you know, without thinking what's going to happen. You can't do these things like, You've done before, now you are like, you increase the number, you can't do this anymore. Change the way you live. And it's, it's a very, you know, light punishment, I would say, that we receive now, like in climate change. It's not like, it's, it's, it's time to think. It's gonna be harsher if we don't change, but if we change, it might go back to normal, you know, like, and then we use renewable energy we like live in a different society we like and then we can grow as humans then we can think about going to mars not making mars here on earth you know that's what we do and then we try to escape somewhere else i would do want to say what might be positive uh, for you is because you've observed a number of societies where people have a much smaller carbon footprint not consuming in the way irresponsibly the way we do in the west and then i understand there's pollution as well and different things yeah, yeah. but so you you've seen people survive on a lot less and i guess that that's positive to be able to see it is possible to to have it not i don't know if we're all willing to make that um <laughs> to mm. go agrarian and everything christina please you had another question for vlad i really wanted to know how the climate change story is evolving in Kamchatka. Peninsula has some, uh, several volcanoes, which happen to be UNESCO World Heritage Sites. And um, what is going on there? What is the, maybe the natural, the social landscape of that area? Does it differ from other regions of Russia? Mm, I, I, to be honest, I haven't been following. Uh, I don't know. I can't answer this question. 
uh, I visited the particular communities. I was interested more in the human side of it, you know, how right. this, how these communities are affected. And when I went to the Scamander Islands, there was like a, a small island to cover. And then I, I was also like covering wildlife. But, um, yeah, volcanoes, I didn't, Kamchatka is quite big, you know, yeah, as many yeah. angles you can find for this uh, climate change story. So like, I, I, I don't really and the people that you uh, photographed in your series, are you personally connected to them? I, I how to say, I stayed with many of them. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's not like you come and you go. You, I can tell you like many stories. I sleep with these people. Sometimes like they put me in this like a uh, fisherman house wow. where <laughs> 15 people sleep and like you there and like the smell, the everything is like, Ooh, it becomes part of you or one morning i was i don't know if you remember a photograph with where fishermen drinking vodka and there's like a big dog on the front side and i just woke 7 a.m because i was kicked out from the house i was staying very early the person needed to go to work and he said you, you leave now wow. and then somebody screams at me photographer come have breakfast with us at 7 a.m i look up i see a, a man see me with the camera I come up and here they are like totally drunk 7 a.m and I joined them I have some tea and one guy starts strangling me because he said it was fun and that's in this situation I take a photo and but it's 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 a play for me you know it's like you're part of the community you walk around with the camera and you look for you know for a good shot but at the same time you're not a photographer just you're their friend, you, you become part of them. Otherwise, it will not work. They need to trust you. They need to fully relax before you take photos. So it's not the first thing I do. I come and say, oh, I take photos. No, I don't touch my camera. I explain what I do, but we talk about life. We talk about other things. We, you know, we share food. We walk around. We tell stories. Then the camera comes right so you sort of have to be receptive to these things happening to you know people encountering you inviting you in i just can't help but think of um i'm really a music person and there's this uh, victor Tsoi uh, song about kamchatka and there's this lyric that goes um i was trying to find wine there but i found my third eye that's sort of like what's going through my head right now and that's what i found there the third eye that's true <laughs> yes and I want to speak about, I mean, some of the people whose stories you've documented are really uh, courageous or some, like you spoke about uh, the violence who, uh, that has been, um, that the women from Papua New Guinea have endured or even the, the shark colors who act I can't even, I, I couldn't believe this. They have put the noose, they get into the water and put the noose around sharks. <laughs> just, and then there's countless, there's this kind of, um, this willingness or this, uh, in, how you say, having confronted violence or extremes. Um, is it inspiring for you? Well, how does it make you feel when you encounter these extremities? Uh, this I wouldn't call them extremities because they became part of my life. So my life is a constant changing of these colorful pictures and lives of people. You know, I, I, I don't have home, to be honest, so to speak. 
right? I always move the countries. I like to move to a region, choose the country, stay there for a while, two, three years. Then I move the region. Then I go somewhere else. Then go to Africa, go to the Pacific or like Asia and or Russia or somewhere else. And um, if it's something violent, of course, I have to process and I have to come. Okay, I, I did not expect that. But at the same time, it's a natural, like, how to say, we don't see death often, right? But it doesn't stop it to exist. And if you go to the places you encounter death, if you go to a funeral agency or to morgue in the hospital or something, then you will see that's like the bodies are being brought every day, many times a day. And then for people who work there, this is, what is it? If you go to a flower shop, we don't see flowers every day around us, but someone surrounded by flowers every day. So it is natural way of life. I don't say the violence should be a natural way of life. It's not, I am against that, but it exists. And when you go to this, I try to treat it. Okay, this is what happens. Agree with that or not agree is a different thing. But this is what happens. When I come back, I try to unload this from myself. There's on the pictures, there's my job, there's the message I want to say, or this is my passion, what I want to say, but this is not part of me. So if you do not accumulate this, still being empathic to people, still like sharing your, your heart as well, they sharing, you're not taking the picture, right? they're giving you picture, they're giving the story, but you also give them something back, a bit of love, a bit of word of support, a bit of maybe even you can bring someone who you know who can help the, this particular person you know and there were cases like that as well and uh, so it works like that i don't know it's a i don't know how to explain in general i guess it's a case-by-case -case situation mm. and in these societies they're um, you know they they're vastly different some of them but uh, from things that we understand, whether it's uh, rituals or superstitions or um, being less uh, inclusive in terms of um, gender preference or, you know, uh, there's a lot of different customs and things that you're navigating. But what do you find are some, you know, universal truths that has ignited your experiences the universal truth is probably there is good and bad <laughs> <laughs> that's the universal universal truth uh you know believing in witchcraft for example in some societies they do believe in some they don't believe but in some societies you're a democrat and you're a republican and for those people it's a witchcraft as well so it depends on the point of view we always <coughs> good and bad is a division mm -hmm. and then people are divided they believe that there is like duality that exists that this is this is me and this is other in fact there's no other it's just like we that's that's when i talk about changing the way you think about climate change about yourself there is no other it's not the other country all this primitive people as some call them you know they do believe in this no it's us as well it's a different it's like your leg or like your finger or something but this the humanity is one organism if we understand that there will be way less problems in the world you know and like some some people still on this stage of the development but would you blame let's say your child for 
trying to walk and, and walk a little bit wobbly. No, you just give it the time. You know, Papua New Guinea was a very remote country, isolated from the rest of the world. They didn't have, you know, like universities and something. And then recently, suddenly they were introduced to the Western way of life. And we say in them, it's not the bad, bad, better or worse, the, 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 the way of life that they lived before. It's just the different. So when we introduce it and we introduce very fast, people might not be ready for that. You know, that's it. That's it. We need just to, to understand that. And, and I'm not saying that they were like less developed. It's not that. It's, it's, daily. it's like there's yellow color, there's blue. Why blue is not yellow? Because it's blue. That's it. And that's what, what was with them. It's, they just live differently. And now there's a lot of people try to now reconnect. You know, there's like thinking, ah, what the elders say in, in the United States of America or in Australia, every new big scene they now call the native people and they ask them, why don't you do a ceremony to call the spirits or something like this? You know, now it's changing. Now they tap into this truth to this, uh, let's say, ancient knowledge that probably people will forget. And now the governments would invite these people. You know, I've been to many festivals in Sydney that start from inviting Aboriginal people to do a water blessing ceremony or something like that. So it becomes part of like the shifting of awareness. Your way of life is different from ours, is not, is not worse or better, it's just different. So let's also like include it in, uh, in the way we live and share and exchange. My name is Christina and I'm a collaborating curator with the creative process. I came across Vlad's climate change reportage on an online magazine called Bird in Flight. In his photography, we get a glimpse of how people's environments shape the world outlook and how people are adapting to environmental change. As Vlad talks about the importance of societal change on Earth before we even think about going to Mars, Mia makes a good point that we are not all willing to downsize, one way or another. Western societies are complacent in their high-tech stage of development as prime irrigators of electricity, while people in developing societies work hard to attain access to these same resources. Young farmers in poor nations do not want to keep being farmers, and Western households are unwilling to cut back on electric power consumption or pay regressive environmental taxes that hit lower-income households the hardest. Vlad believes that all change starts at an individual level. It also has to come from the top. The island nation of Kiribati, which Vlad vastly documented in his Warm Waters project, is projected to go underwater around 2100. But unfortunately, Incumbent politicians do little to acknowledge the coming climate refugee reality, pursuing expensive tourist infrastructure and multinational investment projects instead. Meanwhile, in Western green-centric states, greenhouse gas emissions control is annulled by developments like the use of green energy to subsidize projects that support an expanding economy and electric power exports. States like Germany have cut back on clean energy nuclear power faster than on coal power. 
Climate change also poses a very existential threat to cultural heritage. As Vlad mentions, Western society is adopting a more inclusive approach toward the shamanistic tradition of indigenous communities. But it is also true that this is a shrinking way of life everywhere due to globalization, urbanization, environmental change, and infectious disease. Shamanism is a prehistoric tradition of wisdom, ethnomedical healing, and a communally therapeutic expression of spirit and personality. It exists as an antithesis to modernity and organized religion. There is this saying that shamanism is the oldest profession there is among anthropologists. Common elements unite the shamanic tradition on every settled continent. Ethnomedical wisdom has led to important pharmacological discoveries like quinine in the past, but it remains largely understudied. Oftentimes, Western botany will label plants as the same species whereas indigenous wisdom will dig deeper and effectively designate special healing properties to different plants within the same standard species or to different parts of a particular plant. Much of the effectiveness of shamanistic healing has to do with the collective belief of all the people who partake in the healing ritual or performance. And these rituals are powerfully influenced by the environment in which they occur. Anthropologist Dr. Mark J. Plotkin notes in his book Medicine Quest that the Western reductionist approach, which the foundations of science and economy rely on, often cannot accommodate cultural contexts. An unfortunate side effect of this is the encroachment of companies that exploit the intellectual property and natural resources of indigenous communities. In my own career path, I like to have the opportunity to explore how ecological change is affecting people's ways of existing within their world. In certain regions of Malaysia, for example, there are people who believe that deforestation is dislocating spirits. Spirit sightings near old trees and ruins are said to be shared features in episodes of mass hysteria among schoolchildren. Notions about primordialism or essentialism aside, a bare truth is that the environment has always played a role in how people perceive and interact with each other in the world and society they create. How directly does our environment shift lifestyles and cultural practices? And you spoke about um because I, as you teach workshops and connect with students and you pass on what you know, what have been, um, you know, I, I, I like to know the advice that you give to students, but also who, uh, what mentors or teachers were important for when you were developing your, um, when you were becoming a photographer? Mm. I'd say, I don't want to call names. I attended many workshops. Some of them were quite big. Some of them there was like private. I don't want to like advertise and like talking about the mentors and something. I would say like this, learn, learn to unlearn. That would be my advice. Definitely go to these workshops when you're a student, when you're trying to 
develop your vision, when you try to develop uh, like some skill set, you definitely have to learn. Later on, forget all of this and let your inner intuition and vision guide you in the stories you want to cover, in the way you want to take a picture. And that's, and that's for me the only way because otherwise you start keep repeating the patterns of other people. Workshop I teach now is uh, they quite, they're quite different from, uh, let's say, orthodox uh, photography workshops. I teach people how to disconnect from the camera and how to connect with your inner senses, how to photograph with your eye, with, with how to connect with the place you go with your eyes, with your nose, with your ears. We, we close their eyes. We go to the, for example, the most photographed place, let's say, Eiffel Tower, right? We've been photographed like billions of times by people, and especially if you're a Parisian photographer, like how differently would you take this photo? Like, is there a way? We did it in St. Petersburg as well with people, or in Kiev, in Ukraine. And then we close our eyes and we're like, I use some devices to enhance and we listen to the place. We stay for half an hour and we listen to the place. People look strange at us, they use eye mask. I enhance, I use this microphone, to, and then the bicycle pass, the something. So the, the more details that we don't see, we start to imagine them, we start to connect, we smell the air or something. Then we go and we take picture with our eyes or we set our camera later and then take only one photo. You know, like allowing to, this like the decisive moment that Cartier Brisson was talking about and using this kind of, you know, bringing back because digital photography is destroying all of this when you had the film you had to pay for the for the film for development for the dark room it takes time time consuming you would think about how would you spend spend your 36 uh you know the frames in, in in one roll of the camera you know we all went through this but now we have a lot of flashcards you don't need to think about this and then it changes. Then you ended up shooting like from a machine gun. I'm kind of not literally, but maybe literally for quiet so for some people, you know. And then you spend time in front of the screen selecting the right image. It's not how it's supposed to be. It's not you're not like a video camera shooting everything. And then you bring in the right. It's not you who took the scene, which is your camera took. So I'm trying people to reconnect back to this, uh, to the ways that. Uh, how to understand the decisive moment, how to take the right image. And it also allows you to understand better the, the place. And when you use all of your senses, then you take quite different images, I must say. Yeah, I used it in my, uh, in my photography as well. So, yeah. Yeah, so you really pay that much more attention. We, well, you have to pay for all those things, but when it costs, you know, you, you're thinking, is, is that the one I want to take? I guess it's about being more alive or being more, more open and, and uh, aware. Um, yeah. And I know, I think that learning to unlearn, le learning first, but then unlearn. Is unlearn, really, yeah. Yeah, is really excellent advice. And, and that, as you think, I mean, this is an educational initiative, the creative process, and we're inviting creative uh, responses uh, to, to, to some of the uh, sub-organizations you work with, to UNESCO World Heritage Sites, uh, we invite those interim students, but uh, we do ask them to think about, you know, 
their wishes for the future and how they, as you, as you yourself think about the future and the kind of world we're leaving the next generation, you've had the great opportunity to observe a lot of different systems, a lot of different cultures, be it from the point of view of education or the environment or this health crisis we go through. But what do you feel are some ways that you might like to improve upon these systems that are in varying degrees of uh, change now? Mm. I, I, I think in a way I already answered these questions yeah. in my like summarizing yeah. what I was talking about. Maybe another advice and it's not a photography advice to be honest it's a life advice that i try to and i i, I learned it from someone else maybe read the book but it's like and i'm sure you all know that's like live live today as, as this is your last day do not use do not be opportunistic you know everybody has its own job right and uh, try to share not just to take but to give as well every time you do your work think, uh, think about other people and then naturally the future will improve mm -hmm. it will happen naturally then we don't need to create the programs of saying oh like let's do in 20 years we want to do that it is a good thing to do i believe but it's also like um yeah it's i don't know if, if not it's not maybe not an advice as a it's more like a philosophical question and it wasn't a philosophical question to me as well so the yeah no, I, I, I think that I think that that's excellent advice, and it's true when we uh, act uh, with that level of personal responsibility, it will of course have repercussions um, in the wider society. Well, I, I want to thank you, um, Vlad Sorkin, for uh, the stories that you tell uh, visually, uh, also through explaining the stories behind those pictures, um, for uh, the images that you create that help us inspire awareness of environmental and social uh, injustices and how we might move towards a, a, a greater, kinder society. And, and and of course for the beauty of your images uh, both in chaos and stillness and thank you for adding your voice thank you this interview was conducted by mia funk and christina tuniak with the participation of collaborating universities and students associate interviews producer on this podcast is christina tuniak digital media coordinator is yu young lee Wintertime was composed by Nicolas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. Has this interview sparked your creative process? If so, you can submit your creative works to submissions at creativeprocess.info for an opportunity to be included in the projection elements of our exhibition Traveling to Leading Universities or published on our website www.creativeprocess.info If you want to get involved in exhibitions or interviews, email us at team at creativeprocess.info